recorded live. Hi, everybody. Today is October 10th, 2016. I'm Heidi DeRoe, and I'm your host of The Mixed Experience. It's a weekly podcast by a mixed chick sharing mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world. Today, we have a really great guest to talk to about The Mixed Experience again. Yeah, I know I always say I have a great guest, but I have a really great guest today, and I'm just intrigued by his story and can't wait to talk to him about it. But first, I have a couple of announcements. One is that we have opened the submissions for the Mixed Remixed Festival. That's my project in Labor of Love. It's a 501c3 nonprofit, all-volunteer organization, and uh, we're looking for writers and bloggers and storytellers of all stripes, performers, musicians, maybe magicians. Uh, We're looking for people that we can feature at next year's festival for June 2017. So you can go to the website www.mixedremix.org and get the details. We'd love to learn more about your work. The second thing is the festival has also launched an online book club. We just did our first community call and discussion last week about Matt Johnson's book, Loving Day. It was a great discussion. I co-lead the discussion with our literary and workshop director, Jamie Moore, who's a great reader and teacher of writing and also a writer herself. And so it was a really lively, engaging discussion. I'm going to tell you guys here first because I'm in the know, uh, but we'll be announcing tomorrow the next book club pick, and it is, drumroll please, Gail Brandeis, The Book of Dead Birds. She was also a Penn Bellwether winner, as was I, and her book is great. We'll be reading it this month and get together on November 10th on the festival podcast. Separate from this, it's a different podcast. So if you go to the site, again, www.mixremix.org, you can get information about the book club. We would love to hear from you. Okay, so that is all the announcement stuff. Now, on to the good stuff, the very fine and wonderful guest. Uh, I was introduced to his work through a friend who sent me a link to some of what he does as a magician. Yes. So today, I'm very excited to have Henik Nagosh on the show. He is a magician, and he has been since the age of 12. He is currently 36, but he does not look 36. That's fantastic. I've been, or he's been performing seriously for eight years. He has a bachelor's and a master's degree in social work from San Diego State University. He had a 12-year career in social services. He's a former Peace Corps volunteer serving in rural Thailand for three years. He's also published research on strategies to address type 2 diabetes care in rural settings. But his focus now is on magic. He's focusing on performing in a way that is authentic, has meaning, but is also entertaining with a touch of humor. Actually, he's very funny. I really like that about his work that I've seen. Uh, He's doing his best to keep things modern and relevant. And uh, you can find him at bowtiemagician.com for his website. His Instagram is bowtiemagician. But he's here live with us today to talk a little bit about himself and his magic. So, welcome, Henik. Uh, Thank you for having me, Heidi. I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to tell you that there is no right answer to this first question, but it's the question I ask all of the guests. Mm -hmm. So, don't panic. Uh, But what are you? 
Wow, that's a yeah, that's a deep philosophical question, huh? Um, I know, right off the bat. Yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> how do we define ourselves? Uh, I'll say I'm a magician, a social worker, an only child, and uh, race-wise, I'm uh, Ethiopian and Irish. Oh, I shouldn't have actually asked you this question because it, that's such an interesting piece of the work you do. But 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 we'll back up anyway. Um, okay. Tell me a little bit about your growing up because I have to say I've met a lot of mixed people in my work mm-hmm. as a writer and as a festival producer. But I, I will admit I have not met another mixed Irish Ethiopian person. Uh, <laughs> where did you grow up? And uh, what was that experience like growing up mixed? Uh, I was born in Berkeley, California, but raised pretty much my whole life uh, in San Diego, uh, raised by my mom and her family. So that that side of my family was all white. Uh, and so growing up, uh, you know, I just kind of I wanted to blend in. And so there was uh, those questions of identity and which group do I belong to and I just didn't want to stand out. Um, didn't get bullied too much or anything like that, but uh, it was kind of a confusing time of, you know, who, which group do I belong to, so to speak. When you were growing up, did you face that question often? What are you, or what did you identify yourself as? Well, it, it was weird. You know, I was raised by a white family, and so when I would... Uh, when I would see things that dealt with racism and I would just be so confused by it. I was just like, you know, why is there, why is there people of Caucasian descent and they just hate me for my skin color, but yet my mom's side of the family is a white. So I was, I was kind of confused by it and maybe even uh, a little naive. Um, so, but you know, I didn't hold any grudges or anything like that. I didn't grow up with any animosity or a chip on my shoulder. I was, just trying to fly underneath the radar. I think that's a a very uh, similar story that I've heard from other interviewees and guests and just other mixed people I know that sometimes the safest thing was just to be almost invisible Mm -hmm. uh, and, and erase your difference however you could, whether that was by not talking about it or by not acknowledging it. And I'm wondering, was there a moment as you grew up where you realized, oh, when they're talking about the race thing, they might be including me? Yeah, I was in my uh, I was in my early teens, um, and at that time, when in elementary school, I was in a I was in a public school, a magnet school. So there, uh, there weren't many African Americans in the school, um, probably like five, and we came from all different uh, regions of the neighborhood. So I didn't live next to any of them. Um, but as I got into middle school, some of my best friends were were African American, so I, I kind of uh, gravitated towards hanging out with them and enjoying my time with them. So, um, and I would listen to the way they would talk about the world. And uh, I didn't have the same viewpoints. They talked a lot about race, but uh, it was interesting just to listen to, um, just, you know, just uh, just hear a different perspective. Yeah. I, and I was wondering, because your background is so varied, uh, I feel like 
I, obviously all of those threads are put together to create who you have become today and who you continue mm-hmm. to be. But this um, Peace Corps part of your mm-hmm. background was really fascinating to me. Why did you decide to do that? It's one of the hardest jobs, and I can imagine it was challenging in a, in a certain way just because of your mixedness. Yeah, um, in uh, around the year 2007-2008, I was just kind of getting frustrated with the social work jobs I was getting. They were very bureaucratic. I felt like they weren't really trying to make a difference. It was more about data collection than anything else. And I just needed to kind of shake up some things and get some new life experience. I was a, a Southern California kid my whole life. And I knew there was more to the world, but I didn't really experience it. So did the paperwork, went through the interview process, which is a long process. And then 18 months later, in January 2010, I uh, boarded a plane in L.A. and and went out to uh, Thailand. And I I spent the next three years out there. Typically, Peace Corps service is two years. But uh, about a year into it, I, I had some work going, and I wanted to extend to see it through. What was that experience like? I mean, did you feel like, obviously it sounded like you were making a difference because you stayed for so long, but in terms of your own self-development, was there a piece of you that felt more at home being abroad? This is one of the big questions I always have for myself. Like, There are times where I feel more comfortable in my complication when I'm outside of the country than I do when I'm in the country? You know, I can, uh, I can easily say those three years were the best three years of my life, uh, not even close. I, I lived in a little village named Kamenau, and I, wor- I did community development work, um, and this village had 3,500 people in it. There were no banks. There were no movie theaters. Uh, but the relationships with the people were unbelievable and out there you live a simple life if you ask someone what they did uh, in a typical day they would say oh i, I was so busy today i, I did so many things and I go, what did you do they go oh i i had lunch i went to the market and i had dinner <laughs> i'm just i'm just so busy <laughs> that's like, so awesome oh. Yeah, and I'm just like, wow, uh, this life, uh, I know typically New Yorkers look at Californians and go, you guys are a little too laid back. Us Californians look at Hawaiians and go, you guys are a little too laid back. And I think Hawaiians will look at Thais and go, uh, you guys are a little too laid back. Um, But they're (laughs) they're just the most relaxed people. And it was just a really pleasant, simple life and really enjoyable work. What? How did they interpret who you were? I mean, did they? In the obviously, you're with the Peace Corps, but they did mm-hmm. they know that you were American, or did they kind of feel like maybe you're part of their tribe? Which often yeah. happens to me when I'm in New York City. Like every cab yeah. driver who's of a different ethnicity thinks I'm their ethnicity, <laughs> depending uh-huh, on what yeah. my hair looks like. <laughs> well, a lot of the volunteers' experiences is that. Uh, when you live abroad, especially in rural areas, they think that uh, Americans look like all movie stars. So they would say, mm-hmm. you're not American. You don't, you don't have blonde hair. And I go, no, I, I am American. And 
there's also uh, there's also some fears of African Americans out there because typically African Americans in films are portrayed in a violent light, and then the other news they get is, you know, probably some rebellion or turmoil in Africa. So they're mm. a little bit hesitant at first and a little intimidated. Uh, but when I got out there, they began to understand a little bit that America is very diverse. And as I was integrated in the culture and they knew I wasn't leaving, uh, they, they welcomed me with open arms and uh, really treated me like uh, like a native. And, and that was great. I, I love to hear that you had that experience ultimately. Um, so I'm much older than you are. And I had an experience in Spain many years ago in college where I was in northern Spain going to school mm-hmm. there. And people couldn't understand what I was. And yeah. when I said I was African-American, they'd say, no, Michael Jordan is African, you know, is black. You're not black. Yeah. They, like they couldn't yeah. get it. And because, uh, because of my size, a lot of them thought I was at least uh, part southern Thai. Because in the South, uh, they tend to eat more fish. They're a little bit, a little bit larger in size, and so <laughs> a lot of them thought, like, "Oh, you're you're from Thailand," and I was just like, "No." And they uh, they learned that quickly as I struggled the first year or so, uh, pretty mightily with the language. But you did pick it up after the three years. Yeah, yeah, I pick it. Uh, I, I pick it up fairly well. I speak uh, pretty good conversationally, and then. Um, uh, learned a lot of medical terminology since the work I did out there. It's gotten a little bit rusty. It's been three years, but if I was out there again, I could I could pick it up rather quickly. I, I just love that story. I hope you're you're writing about it somewhere at some point because I just I see this as a great memoir turned into a movie. Well, uh, part of part of the third goal goal of Peace Corps is to kind of spread the information and the experience. So. While I was out there, I did a monthly blog, um, kind of about my thoughts, my experiences, the differences between the cultures, and, and what I make of it. So people tend to uh, tended to enjoy it. Uh, I still got them saved. Don't know quite what I'll do with it yet, but it's uh, it's on the hard drive. Is it something that our listeners could access if they wanted to go back and read any of it? Is it still online? No, it was never online. I just did it through uh, an email thing. But, you know, what I could do is maybe work something out with you and I could send you them and I guess you could pick the greatest hits and send it out maybe on your website. Yeah, I think people would definitely be interested in hearing more about that. But but now I'm going to try to tie all these threads here. Tie, that's Mm -hmm. not a pun, sorry. Um, (laughs) Bad word choice. But... You're a magician. That's what I learned about you first. You mm-hmm. started at age 12. What was your yep. fascination with magic? Or, Well, I think everyone's fascinated with magic, but why did you want to do magic at that age? Um, growing up, since I was an only child, I was a very curious kid, and I used to pepper my mom with just annoying questions. You know, how does this work? What's the biggest this, what's the biggest that? And I remember when I was eight, she got me a Guinness Book of World Records uh, to try to answer some of these annoying questions. She goes, just go look in the book, Henry. Uh But I saw these TV shows, David Copperfield TV shows, when I was about 12. And I just said to my mom, I was like, man, this stuff just looks cool and I want to learn it. So at the time in the Kearney Mesa area of San Diego, there was a, a magic shop called Bradford's Magic Shop. Went in there, the shopkeeper showed me some stuff. 
and my mind was just blown. Uh, I thought it was real, um, and I wanted to learn about it. So I got a book, started practicing, um, then throughout the years just got better, got out for a little while, but then uh, got back in heavily when I was 21 years old. Hello? Hello? Did we lose each other? Yes, I'm sorry, Henick. I'll have to fix right. this afterwards. I, I somehow um, lost you there for a second, but I could still okay. hear a little bit. Um, so I, I want to... Well, you I, that you... Yeah, could you go? Could you back up and talk a little bit about... You were saying that you were an only child, and so you were looking for... Well, things to do, essentially. Yeah, and so I, I saw some TV specials on magic, uh, David Copperfield, and uh, my mom took me to the local magic shop. I went in there. The, the shop owner showed me a few things, and my mind was just blown. I, I literally believed it was real, and it just captivated my attention. Um, so I went to uh, I went to study it heavily, um, now, my father is a musician, a pretty accomplished piano player, and I think genetically, whatever dexterity he passed down, music never intrigued me, but but uh, it went towards sleight of hand and then uh, the field of magic. Um, you Did you continue to do magic through all of these years? Because you've only recently uh, taken it up very seriously. Yeah, I... Um, I went, I studied pretty proficiently from the ages of 12 to 16. Then I got out uh, for a number of years, and then I got heavily back in when I was 21 years old uh, and visited the Magic Castle here in Hollywood for the first time. And that uh, that reignited the passion, and uh, then I really dove in. It was, you know, four to five hours of practice daily, lots of reading, studying, thinking, and uh, just kind of been been on it ever since. Can I just stop you there? Because I I guess I haven't thought about magic that way. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like you're really in training when you're doing this, and it's like being an athlete and making sure that you practice and study. Tell me more about how do you you do this? When it's perceived by the lay public, since, since magic has to be invisible, you could easily just look at it and go, oh, that's that's easy. You probably you probably picked up that trick a week ago, and and you just learned it. Uh, un, unlike the piano, where all of us have experience playing that, we know it's all those keys and the pedals, and it's difficult. Many people have tried it and you just go, man. So an accomplished piano, you know, that's great skill and practice. Uh, magic's a lot of the same way, and not only dexterity wise, but you have to make the moves invisible. You have to figure out the way uh, to make the trick interesting um, and kind of fit your character as well as audience interaction because when you bring an audience member up stage, you, you never really know for sure what they're going to do. Um, well, so that's what's so a lot winning. Of balls that are juggling. Yeah, yeah, there, that's what's so winning because the way I found you, someone sent me a link to your 
your pen and teller Fula segment. Oh. And I thought, oh my gosh, this guy is fantastic. He's so funny. He seems so comfortable in his own skin. And he's talking about exactly what I like to talk about most, which is, you know, how do we live as mixed people and mixed families in the world? And he's making it magical, literally. <laughs> uh, Why did you funny. decide to bring that element to your act? Um, that routine, pretty much they sort of say in magic, everything is old. It's just a matter of how you present it. That routine, uh, the effect of it, um, he's been around for a few decades. And it's typically presented as, imagine we go on a vacation, you know, and we're on this fantasy vacation and we stay at a hotel and we have a room number and how much money do we bring and that gets revealed at the end. But to me, that didn't sit well because I was lying. It it didn't apply to me. Uh, I didn't really care about a fantasy vacation. But the one question I've always gotten my whole life is, you know, what are you? And when I was young, I used to just tell them the answer and then brush it off and get on with life. But then as I got older, I began to ask, like, what do you think I am? And I would just get a whole host of answers and I would just laugh because it was hysterical to me. And I realized early on that when people meet me pretty quickly, they're trying to, you know, pigeonhole me to a certain country, um, <laughs> yes. just label label me that title. So I just figured, what if I take this old trick and give it this new presentation um, about what they think I am, and then you kind of forget that there's a trick involved, and at the very end when we open up the envelope, um, you know, all those silly things kind of make sense in the end. Well, I I had forgotten we were doing magic as well, just like you said, and I thought, oh, this is this guy is so great. Like, you know, he's talking about something that matters in magic, and he's really engaging. And I didn't even know, like, that there was going to be a payoff at the end. It had totally <laughs> escaped me that I was supposed to be watching a magic trick at some point which made it even more magical at the end when you do the reveal. So, yay. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want you. everyone to see this. It's so great. Yeah, I've been doing it for for a while now. And, uh, yeah, people just, they're laughing so hard, and they think it's just kind of a comedy and a joke, and we're just interacting with each other. And then at the end of it, you kind of, you kind of punch them in the gut where they just remember, oh, yeah, and there's, you know, I try to, try to make a, a little more of a story at the end of it where, you know, you just just can't judge people by by their cover. Yeah, it's it's so wonderful. If people want to see it, they can go to your website, bowtiemagician.com, and you actually have it uh, listed there so mm-hmm. people can see the whole piece. You do not want to miss this, guys. Um, tell me about the Magic Castle performances. I mm-hmm. still do not understand the Magic Castle. I just heard about it, even though I'm in L.A. I've been mm-hmm. there for 13 years. I just heard about it two years ago. I keep trying to figure out how come I haven't gotten an invitation to go. Um, are you allowed to tell us anything else about uh, it? I definitely can. So um, it's known as the Academy of Magical Arts, um, and it's housed inside the Magic Castle. The Magic Castle has been open for, I want to say, about 53 years. And uh, think of like a nightclub, uh, but instead of, you know, having a bunch of different dance rooms, 
you have different showrooms. It's a private club. You've got to get invited by a member. Uh, typically, you'll buy dinner. There's a door charge. It can get a little bit costly, but once you get in, there's a show schedule, and it's all different showrooms. So there's a close-up room, which holds about 27 people, and it's very small and intimate. There's the parlor, which holds about 60 uh, there's the palace, which is, you know, more traditional. What you think of Las Vegas probably holds about 140 people. And there's a few other rooms. There's bars, lots of bars to serve alcohol. And the cool thing about it is it's very old school Hollywood because men have to be wearing a suit and tie. And I've heard ladies, that, yes. Ladies have to be in cocktail attire. So it's probably... I'm going to guess it's probably the last place in L.A. that, that requires formal attire um, at all times. And I, I've seen people show up in designer jeans and they're not allowed in because, you know, it's got a, it's got a messy dress code. Well, well so you're, you're doing your magic um, basically full time at this point. What yep. are the, what are the next steps for you as a magician and where can we see you next? Um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm available for hire. I've, uh, so obviously I work at the Magic Castle. I'm, I'm going to be there the first week of November, November 1st to November 6th, working the late parlor. So if you're in the Los Angeles area and you want to go out, you know, I could, uh, probably get you access in. Okay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and then from there, you know, you get hired for a bunch of different things. You get hired for weddings. You get hired for by corporations. Um, people sometimes hired me to come into their living room and do a formal show, which, which is probably the most favorite because that's the way magic was done in the, in the 1800s when it was probably at its peak. Uh, yeah. And I I enjoy that the most. Uh, but yeah, you know, there, you could pretty much use it for almost anything. But people tend to just go, oh. Uh, I got a kid and he's turning five. Can you do the show? And <laughs> I just, I just say to him, you should probably, you should probably look at my uh, material. I don't know, I don't know how much that kid would enjoy guessing the countries I come from. He'd probably be pretty confused <laughs> by and want to know where the rabbit's at, right? And then I don't utilize any livestock in in my magic show. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, so here's a question, um, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I think it's true for all artists because I consider what you do. Part, part like being an athlete, but also part being an artist. It's sort of a, mm-hmm. a special combination of those two things because the physical sleight of hand, as you said, is important. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, like, what, what's the goal for you as a magician? Do you hope to have a Vegas show or, like, for me as a writer, I think, okay, well, I used to think, oh, my gosh, if I could just get an agent, then I made it, and then I got an agent. And then Mm -hmm. uh, if I could just sell my first book, then I will have Mm -hmm. made it. And I was like, well, no, if it sells really well, then I will have made it. Well, if I make the New York Times bestseller list, you know, and it goes on and on and on. Is there that kind of progression for a magician's uh, career? Uh, Yeah, there can be, and it's a matter of – kind of what direction you want to go. I like, I like the intimacy of magic. Um, most of the time with the big, huge Vegas shows, as soon as the large box comes out and the girls wearing gold dresses start dancing around, I tend to lose interest. Um, 
because I feel like I'm not knowing the person, but if we're all in a room, a room that could hold, you know, 60 to 70 people and it's designed well and we're interacting and we're sharing this experience, it kind of feels like everyone's part of the play. So Mm. um, I think the guy who's doing it the best right now is a gentleman named Steve Cohen out in the, out in New York. He, he has a a show at the Waldorf Astoria in the penthouse suites and it's reserved just for him. And I want to say, I'm not sure how many it holds, but it's pretty intimate. You go up there and you're kind of dressed up as well and you're in a nice room and you get to just have this really intimate experience. So that, that was, sounds awesome. Yeah, Steve Cohen. Was, yeah, Steve Cohen. Yep. So, so if well, you're I, in New York, you can check them out. I I can't wait to see your magic in person. I I've been enchanted with what I've been able to see online so far, and still I'm thoroughly intrigued by your story, which I I think will really jazz the listeners too. Um, you're going to be at the Magic Castle at the beginning of November. Will you mm-hmm. have other dates um, on your website soon? Uh, not uh, in terms of the castle. Don't don't know yet. But I'm typically I'm typically not yet out in theaters for just the general public. Whenever I'm out performing, it's usually um, it's usually because a party or something hired me. So I just just couldn't get the general general public to come to it. Maybe someday right. in the future, um, but yeah. Well, just... we're we're definitely going to keep in touch with you to to figure out how we can see you um, live and in person. Um, you're at thebowtiemagician.com. That's your website, mm-hmm. and you're on yeah, Instagram as well. Com. Yep. I, well, thank you so much for doing this today, Hennick. I, I love your work. I hope I will meet you in real life soon, maybe the first week of November, hint, hint. And, oh, yeah, <laughs> and then will uh, you please make sure you keep in touch because uh, I'm very excited to see what happens next with your career. I, I appreciate it tremendously, Heidi, and keep this uh, keep this podcast going. This is this is an interesting thing, and. Uh, representing all artists of mixed background, you know, I, you're probably the first, so I'm a, I'm going to champion I am, this. I am the first. Thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to collect us, you know, it's so hard. Like in my own development as a writer, I kept thinking, I know I can't be the only mixed person writing about well, mixed stuff, you know, just kind of the way society's going. I'm guessing that in about 30 to 40 years, I think everyone's going to be mixed. <laughs> So, I think that's you know, right. Just, yeah, uh, you know, I just meet a lot of people in there. You'll have a whole new and so yeah. yeah, you'll have a whole new act by then. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The act won't even yeah. make any sense, and this show won't yeah. make any. sense. It'll be I'll, like, oh, yeah. so it's a show for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I'll be, I'll be one of, I'll be one of a hundred and fifty mixed magicians. So <laughs> I, I got to strike wait. by the iron cut. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be awesome. Well, Hennig, thank you so much. I will um, be in touch with you via email about that November date. <laughs> All right. I got I got a couple of seats for you whenever you want to awesome. come out. Thank you so much. I will talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye. He is so fantastic. Yay. Um, you definitely have to go check out his website, bowtiemagician.com. 
he has um, the video of the Penn and Teller performance up there. Uh, I believe it's under the work tab, but just go through all the pages because he's just really awesome and just a really great story, right? Like it's so interesting the way I think, I don't know, maybe not especially, but I'd like to see this journey of people who are mixed, whether or not they were identifying that way when they were very young or older or whatever it is, that we often have these very mixed journeys to what we want to be or do as well. And uh, I love that he is doing his artistry in this way. I love that mixed people can be magic. Yay! (laughs) Anyway, thanks for joining me. My name is Heidi DeRoe, and this is The Mixed Experience. And we're here every Monday live at 5 p.m. Eastern and 2 p.m. Pacific. If you would like to send me any comments or show ideas, you can write me at Heidi at HeidiWDeRoe.com. Or you can tweet me at Heidi DeRoe. I'm also on Instagram. I'm on Instagram, at HDeroe, and I would love to hear from you. So stay tuned. Next week, I have another fantastic couple of great guests. I'm really excited to talk to uh, entrepreneurs, and that will be Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for joining me. I will talk to you again real soon. Bye-bye.